too many times I've heard of people saying, well, I'll escalate to $5,000 over the highest, you know, competing offer. That doesn't actually give me as a, as a seller any comfort because. Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, I am grateful to have attorney Katherine Taylor of the Massachusetts Associate of Realtors. She is in-house counsel available for members of MAR and their brokers. Hey, Catherine, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark, thanks for having me. So how'd you find yourself an attorney at MAR? So <laughs> that's a uh, interesting question. Um, so I previously had my own small practice based out of um, Holden. I had a, one partner, small, small practice that focused on um, domestic relations and estate planning. Um, I also had my real estate broker's license um, and worked for a brokerage primarily representing um, buyers and uh, love real estate. I've always loved real estate. Um, and I really enjoyed working, you know, in the industry. And when I saw a job posting for uh, counsel for the Association of Realtors, I was like, oh my gosh, that that fits that fits me. And uh, the rest is history. That is a fascinating story. And how lucky they are to have posted that in a place that you would see it because they are lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. So let's get to it. So as you know, we have a Facebook exclusive page uh, for real estate agents only, and they've asked a few questions knowing that I was going to be interviewing you. So let's go. One of the questions I had for you, Catherine, um, <laughs> was specific to surveillance, right? Yeah. A lot of people are videotaping folks in their house so that they don't get robbed, right, during an open house. What about audio? Yeah, we, I mean, we get this question all the time because everybody has devices in their house. You've got the video doorbell, you've got whatever everywhere, like I do too. And people don't understand how strict the wiretapping statutes are here in Massachusetts. So it's actually a big concern for our members because it's a crime to do it yourself. So as the homeowner, but it's also a crime to knowingly assist somebody. So that's where like it comes in for the licensee. If you know, and you don't disclose it, then, you know, you're potentially on the hook as well. Um, so I think that's a great topic. And I, I was very excited when Zoom came out with the new feature also, because I was like, you got to let people know. You've got to let people know. So, but video is very different, right? So seeing yeah. your reactions to the house. Oh, it's so, so look Yeah, video look. is just where do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, but it's where you've got the audio, you know, that you, you've got to get that um, informed consent, basically. So and that's specific to Massachusetts or that's federal? So that's specific to Massachusetts. Massachusetts is one of like a handful of states. I don't remember. I, I gave a presentation on this like two years ago and I don't remember the exact number, but I want to say like six or seven states that is two party consent so or all party consent. So everybody who's subject to the recording needs 
to know that they're being subject to the recording whereas like New York it's not it's like single party consent so whoever's doing the recording I don't know the specifics in New York's law but I know it's not dual dual consent so um we are definitely more rigorous so it's to secretly hear or record another individual without their consent using an intercepting device. So it's not like eavesdropping around the corner, but it's using some sort of electronic device. So it's gonna be, you know, all the security gadgets pe people have, but it doesn't even have to be that sophisticated. It can be a baby monitor, um, you know, go to your neighbor's house, leave the baby monitor on and you can hear what the people are saying in your house. And technically in Massachusetts, that's a violation of the wiretapping statute. Now, how much is enforced is another question, but you know, I, I talked to one of our members who, um, I haven't heard the outcome of it. I think it's still in litigation, but it, an aggrieved buyer learned afterwards that they were recorded and didn't know. And, and they sued the homeowner and they sued the realtor involved. So. Wow. It is happening, but I mean, you could face civil and criminal liability under it. It's pretty stiff. Like I said, I don't know how much it's actually being enforced, but I think it's percolating. So the homeowner could hide under the bed and listen, but to put up a device and listen afterwards, they're right. committing a crime. That's interesting. And the agent themselves, one of your members, if they know about this and they're analyzing it, they are equally as culpable. Potentially, potentially. So we amended our exclusive right to sell listing agreement that under the first paragraph where it says what the buyer's responsibilities are, it includes a disclosure of recording devices because then, I mean, technically the homeowner should be disclosing it to the realtor before the realtor comes in the house if they've got these devices on, but then it at least instigates that conversation so then the realtor knows okay you do or don't have these devices and it specifies whether it's audio visual or both and then we have a secondary form that you can use it's not mandatory it's called notice of recording that they could include as an attachment with the mls listing that says this property is being recorded so then people know when they're viewing the listing to the MLS that it is the bot, the seller can say, I want everyone to sign this. That's a higher threshold than the law itself actually requires. But if you're a really risk averse person and want to make sure that everybody actually does know before they come in the house, you can require that to be signed and returned to you prior to a showing. You know, and then everybody goes in the house and they don't say a word. They don't show any reaction, which is probably what they should be doing anyhow. Right. Now, let me ask you this, Catherine. Um, is every real estate licensed real estate agent in Massachusetts a member of MAR? No. How's that work? So, so we are a private trade organization. So people voluntarily join our association. Um, so you can be a licensee and simply operate um, you know, however you want. If you join the Realtor Association, obviously there are a lot of benefits to our members, like our forms library, for example, is one of the, the best uh, benefits. Legal hotlines is another really good benefit we offer. Um, but we also have the code of ethics that we subscribe to that largely mirrors the um, legal requirements that you're going to have as a licensee, but it adds an additional layer, like it's a little bit more stringent in, in many cases than what's legally required. So, you know, it's a 
they subscribe to a higher code of professionalism, basically just trying to raise the bar for the industry. Awesome. And they can represent that they've measured up to that standard by notifying the consumer in some way? Yes. Yeah, so in addition to the, um, the biannual uh, um, continuing education that all licensees are required to take, realtors are also required on a three-year cycle to take a course on the code of ethics in order to remain in good standing as a realtor. Got it. Okay. So that's the differentiator, the professionalism and the ethical right. standards. Exactly. So let me ask you a couple of questions. So as you know, we have a private Facebook page exclusive to real estate agents, whether they're licensed or mm -hmm. um, well, whether they're designated as realtors or not, if they're a licensed agent, they're welcome to join the conversation. And I put out that I was going to be interviewing you and does anyone have any questions? So here goes. Um, somebody was talking about making two offers at the same time to two different properties. Where does the ethics stand on that? So that's really interesting because that is a question I have gotten more over the last several months than I ever have before. And I think it's just a product of the low inventory market that we're currently in. There's nothing inherently illegal or even a violation of the code of ethics with doing that. That just because it's not a violation, though, doesn't necessarily mean that it's a practice you want to engage in. So first, from the legal perspective, obviously, your buyer client is placing themselves at risk in a situation where they're putting multiple offers out there and they only intend to buy one property. What happens if both of those offers are then accepted? They could be bound to two enforceable contracts. They're going to have to back out of one of them if they can't proceed with them. And then they're subject to uh, you know, losing their deposit on one of those properties. And then from the flip side of the coin is as a licensee, as a realtor, if you're engaging in that type of business practice, it could potentially harm your business reputation in these communities that we live and work in. And um, well, it might be beneficial for that one client to do that, it could potentially harm future clients because if you get a reputation, oh, that Mark, oh my gosh, he's always submitting offers and then rescinding them or backing out of them. And, you know, I don't want to work with him. And it could potentially harm your business reputation and your clients' interests. Ultimately, if nobody wants to work with you, that's going to hurt your clients for sure. But no different than a 1031 exchange, right? So that person, it captures their uh, proceeds. They've got 45 days to identify oftentimes those investors are going under agreement with multiple, multiple properties. Yeah. But I mean, potentially, like I said, there's nothing inherently unethical or illegal about doing it. And I think if you have a client that wants to do that, one, you as licensee want to consider whether that's a practice that you want to participate in. And two, make sure that your client understands the risk that they're potentially subjecting themselves to in doing that because they have to, you know, have a good faith deposit with both of those offers, let's say, they could potentially be paying money to have the opportunity to have 
offers. And as long as they're making an informed decision and that they're entering into it knowing that that's a risk, then that's a decision they can make. And the extent of their damages is the deposit that they're putting forth, which is why a lot of people are asking for bigger earnest money deposits with the offer. Right. Yeah, that that's definitely something, you know, and the amount of the earnest money deposit is like any other term of the contract. It's entirely negotiable. So uh, there's nothing that dictates what it has to be. So where the market is experiencing a lot of unique trends now because of the low inventory, I think, you know, that could be a product of that, that people are saying, well, I want you to have a little more skin in the game earlier on to help protect my interests. And for those that aren't listening to this real time, we're talking about July 6th, 2021, a very scarce market, very imbalanced, unhealthy supply and demand going into summer, where we typically would slow down anyhow. So that scarcity was only expected to to remain. But let me ask you this, on that same vein, but inversely a little bit, buyer agent, busy buyer agent has two buyers, scarce inventory, they both want to bid on the same house. How do you do that? Yeah, that's that's another uh, really common question I've been getting over the last, you know, several weeks, um, which isn't which isn't typical. Um, Again, there's nothing illegal about it. It's not dual agency. The law does not require any specific disclosure or notice or consent um, to engage in that practice. The caveat to that being that, of course, you need to ensure that you're able to fulfill your fiduciary duties fully to both clients within the agency relationship that you have within that, with each of them. So primarily is going to be that duty of confidentiality that you owe to your clients. So if you've got buyer A and buyer B, excuse me, both interested in purchasing a property, buyer A says, all right, here's my best offer, 350, 20% down, you know, 30 day close, whatever. Buyer B says, what do I need to do to get this property? You can't say, well, I know that there's another offer from buyer A that has these terms, you need to beat that because then you would be breaching your duties to buyer A. So as long as you can satisfy your duties to both clients, you can do it. I think it's a difficult position to be in. Um, I would say the the MAR um, buyer agency um, agreement does highlight that as a potential uh, scenario that might arise given the current market conditions we are here in the summer of 2021 might be worthwhile pausing and discussing that potential situation a little more than you might have historically done and say what's your comfort level because you don't you don't want to make anyone uncomfortable either even if it's legal and ethical you've got a business reputation and you want to make sure that your clients are comfortable with you because that's going to benefit everybody involved. So gauge what your client's comfort level is before you find yourself in that type of situation. And then you know how to better proceed. Sometimes it might make sense to refer one of those clients out to help protect everybody's interests. And it might not be the same for for every client you have, but it's definitely worth having that conversation. 
I like the idea of referring out on the on the one off at least. Um, because what happens if that listing agent calls and says, it's both your it's between your two people, which one's going to get it closed? Tell me which one's going to get it closed. And we'll yeah. go with that one. Yeah, it's a difficult situation to be in. And I, I think that it that there's an inherent amount of risk associated with it. And I think it's easy to inadvertently, you know, breach one of your fiduciary duties to one or both clients in that situation, then your license is at risk, you know, in addition to everything else. So, so let's continue down that path of helping um, guide these buyer agents because they are, they are the hardest working folks in the, in the space right now massaging these buyers who are getting rejected left and right, doing everything possible. And that brings up the meeting of the minds, right? And and your members understand the significance of an offer, right? It's the binding contract that we all rely on. And sometimes in those additional provisions, somebody means something and somebody interprets it a different way. And then it's brought to the attorney's to figure out through the purchase and sale agreement. What do you recommend when there's, let's talk about an appraisal, for example, waiving appraisals. Well, what does that mean? Right. right? Go yeah. ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's a good, good point. Um, you know, if you're waiving an appraisal, it it's sort of inherently tied in with your financing contingency. So oftentimes if the property isn't going to appraise, you're not going to get your financing. So if an appraisal is waived, but there's still a financing contingency, I would say that for everybody's benefit, again, so you know how to proceed if the worst case scenario arises. What if the property doesn't appraise? Does the buyer have enough cash? Do they have enough liquidated assets that they can make up that difference? Does it allow them to then back out of the contract based on the financing contingency, even though they waive the appraisal? Um, and then you have to look at the situation too of cash buyers that, you know, they may say, all right, I'm not getting financing. This is a cash deal, but I still want an appraisal to make sure, you know, the opposite. I still want to make sure that this is a good investment for me. Um, so again, anytime you're modifying any of those standard type contingencies more is better because you want to make sure that there is that meeting of the minds and I like to tell people when they ask me these types of questions of you know modifying the you know standard contract to purchase from the uh, MAR library if you're changing this get an attorney involved to make sure that it actually is accomplishing the goal that it's it's set out to accomplish. And especially in this marketplace that we're dealing with, that everything is happening so quickly, your buyers and your sellers should have an attorney set up before that house goes under a contract. Don't wait until you're already under a contract because then the attorneys, which I'm sure you can appreciate, Mark, then the attorneys are stuck trying to figure out what does this mean? And you have the you know potential situation where there's two different interpretations, each of which could be perfectly valid interpretation. And then you've got to almost renegotiate what is potentially a critical term of the contract for purchase and sales. It, it's, it's fascinating that you bring that up because that's exactly what's happening is you have this, what is otherwise 
appropriate language, right? So mortgage contingency, for example, you know, what is the perfect mortgage contingency now? Is it the amount, the dollar figure? Is it a percentage? And is there gamesmanship happening where someone is saying, well, if I go below 80% or I go above 80% loan to value based on the appraisal, then I'm going to have PMI. It's a different loan now. So I think you're on the same page as, as what we are here at Styles Law, which is as transparent as you can possibly be. be. Um, we share cut and paste provisions where we see fit. Um, similarly, I think you all created one for the appraisal gap coverage, right? Is that in the library now? Not specifically. So we have um, an escalation clause form that that language is contained within the escalation clause. So if there's an escalated purchase price, how is that financing covered, which I think could be applicable in, in these types of situations as well. We don't have a specific appraisal form, so to speak. But there's language in the escalation clause? Yes. Escalation clauses are, what do you think about those? Are they, are they the cause of some litigation? Um, I haven't heard of any specific litigation stemming from them. Um, I think we're sort of still in the middle of this flurry right now, but they're definitely being used more frequently, I think, than maybe they have historically been used. Um, and it, again, same with home inspection waivers and appraisal waivers, the escalation clauses, you need to make sure they have enough information in them. Um, too many times I've heard of people saying, well, I'll escalate to $5,000 over the highest, you know, competing offer. That doesn't actually give me as a, as a seller any comfort because I don't know that you can actually purchase at that price or, you know, does it go up in increments or is it a flat amount? So you know, I think with escalation clauses, you need to, as an agent, um, you know, as a, as a licensee in Massachusetts, understand how they work so that you can explain it to your client and make sure that you're including the appropriate language. If you're not using the standard MAR escalation pr provisions form so that you're protecting your client's interests on both ends. So that the buyer who's using it knows what they're doing and that the seller who's receiving it understands what it is that buyer is saying and offering. And then it goes back to that financing gap language of how are they going to pay that differential with the escalated price? You know, it's, it, it, again, it comes back to the, the meetings of the minds, right? So, so we have this wonderful form in your MAR library that allows uh, agents to use and then attorneys to recognize and say, okay, this, this makes perfect sense. Another one that was very confusing and obviously we're not seeing right now in this scarce market is the, you know, the uh, subject to a home sale, right? So you have a subject to a home sale provision in the PNS and it's like sell by whatever. And it's, it's this vague language of, of what do you, what do you actually mean? Are we going to need to continue to extend this? Are we going to continue to try to mirror what your intentions were, but everybody has to agree on what the actual intentions were, which brings me to suitable housing contingencies. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the ways to loosen up inventory, in my opinion, is for people to jump out and, and, and embrace suitable housing contingencies. Mm-hmm. It loosens up a, a twofold. How do you make sure those provisions are fair and equitable for both parties? Because ultimately, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make sure that both parties have an equal balance in the deal. Yeah, absolutely. So a seller defines suitable housing. um, Again, define what suitable housing is. Is it purchasing? Is it renting? You know, what it what's the drop dead date? You know, do they have to have it, you know, closed by a certain date? How many times are they able to, you know, do an extension? for the contract, you know, sort of by right, you know, that just automatically triggers upon notice. Um, All of those factors are important, again, so everybody understands what the playing field is, what, under what terms are they operating on? Because if a seller has, I need to find suitable housing by September 1st, and they can extend, you know, in 30 day increments, two times without penalty. I'm just making up terms. Well, that might not work for a prospective buyer, depending on what their needs are and when they have to be in a home. Let's say they've got a lease that's ending and they already gave notice to their landlord. You know, do they have the ability to hold over any longer? Are they going to be homeless in a situation like that? So you want to make sure that you have enough specificity to avoid potential conflict. And thus, may diminish the value of your property in this auction frenzied market that we're in anyhow. Yes. The, the, the follow-up to that is, okay, so suitable housing may diminish or temper the value you get, but it comes and you have good buyers out there that are willing to wait. And that's a, a good option. If, what about these occupancy agreements? post-closing occupancies. Are you hearing questions about that? Not as many as I maybe would have guessed. I think, you know, I've only gotten a handful of questions about them. Um, You know, and, and again, I can't highlight the importance of working with an attorney, again, specifically for these, because use and occupancy agreements are very unique because it's not the same as a standard tenancy. You don't want to have just a lease agreement that you're doing with that person because then that opens up a whole, you know, new realm of rights, you know, so you want to make sure that what your agreement says is protecting the new owner's interests. And to make sure that they don't commit any uh, negligent bank fraud because right. the mortgage covenants say they are intending to move into the property. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, and in this marketplace, what we're seeing is, you know, there's still a melt up in wonderful, uh, beautiful places that people are trying to get to. And in certain situations, there are folks that, uh, are in distress and sometimes nobody knows that. So there's an inherent risk with somebody who, may have nothing to lose or nowhere to go to have a, an occupancy agreement set forth. One of the other strategies we've talked about is um, the one day exclusive listing agreement. Have you heard anybody talking about limiting their listing to a potential seller saying, I have a buyer for your home. Here's a one day agreement. 
that if that buyer comes through and executes, you'll pay me a fee. Other than that, we don't have a relationship. I have not heard of them being that limited, um, but that's 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 interesting. <laughs> um, no, I haven't gotten any questions from our members about that. You know, I have you know seen limited or um, you know if that's the type of situation they might enter into a facilitation agreement as opposed to you know an exclusive representation agreement. But the the one day is 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 new to me. Tell me about the facilitator role. Yeah, so a facilitator role could be, you know, if you, I mean, it could come up in any number of diff different situations. So as a facilitator, you don't have an agency relationship with either party to the transaction. You're simply there to help guide them through the process to facilitate it and make sure that, you know, all the proper paperwork is completed and that, um, you know, things stay on track, but you're not advising or representing either the buyer or the seller. So if you've got somebody, um, you know, that has talked to you maybe, you know, loosely about listing, and then you've got someone saying, oh, I'd really like a house that meets the criteria. And you say, oh, I might know somebody, go knock on their door and say, hey, are you still interested in selling? That might be a situation where facilitation would work. Um, I know more. some people are more comfortable with it than others, and that's certainly something that all the parties involved would have to be comfortable with as well, as opposed to having their independent um, representation. But certain situations like that do, do come up where it makes sense. So the agent wouldn't actually have a fiduciary duty with either party, could collect the same compensation? So, so as far as duties, as a facilitator, you don't owe the full spectrum of fiduciary duties, but you still have an obligation to disclose any material facts, to treat all parties honestly throughout the transaction, and to account for funds. So if you receive any escrow deposits or things of that nature, you obviously still have to properly account for those. But as far as confidentiality and loyalty and things of that nature, you don't because you're not representing either one of them. Um, so it's definitely a very different type of relationship. And you could be compensated as well as the parties would want to compensate you. Compensation is a matter of contract in that situation because it's outside of the MLS. There wouldn't be, you know, if it, if it is outside of the MLS, there wouldn't be any guaranteed compensation um, from anybody. So you would want to make sure that you're protecting your interests by entering into an agreement with one or both parties to ensure that you are compensated for your services. And in real estate, everything needs to be in writing, right? Always, always. So that brings me to another topic, text messaging. I, I just heard recently on a podcast or on a messaging of some sort that 93% of all real estate communication is being done via text. Where are the traps of binding a client to something uh, through text un, uh, unintentionally? Yeah, it's definitely a real risk. So obviously, um, for a real estate transaction, it has to satisfy the statute of fraud. So all material terms need to be in writing and signed by the parties you know, to be bound. Well, what happens when the seller's agent texts the buyer's agent 
hey, received your offer, we're good to go, or you've got a deal or something along those lines, then you've got this language that you have a question of, does it satisfy the statute of frauds? Does that agent actually have the authority to bind their client to a deal? And the answer is yes, they could. And unfortunately, it's a sort of complex analysis of what, how people were interacting in the relationship and whether people thought that agent had the authority. Oftentimes that's going to lead to litigation if there's a dispute over it, because, you know, it's not a one size fits all. It's not a black or white, you know, yes or no situation. It is, has a lot of different factors that go into determining whether there was the actual or apparent authority to bind the client, but it can happen. It has happened. Um, so you need to be very careful with the type of language that's used when agents are conversing about the terms of the offer because it also doesn't necessarily have to be combined to you know the four corners of, of one piece of paper you can look at cumulative written conversations so a string of text messages an email chain or you know even attached documents you know to an email could be brought in and say well taken all together you've satisfied the statute of frauds and therefore you have a binding contract and then you could have a really upset client, um, you know, and, and, you know, that's fairly significant liability to you as well as an agent if you do that. So anytime, you know, you're responding to specific terms or, you know, contract language, um, I, I would always temper it to be non-committal um, or have a verbal conversation. We do so much, be it text message and email these days that I think we oftentimes forget to pick up the phone and just talk things through because then you can hear tone and, um, you know, a little more specificity. Things can get lost in quick text messages or you could, you know, make a typo and, you know, who knows what that'll do to it. So um, it's definitely an area you want to be very careful with. That's awesome. And, and what a valuable resource you are and Mar is for these agents. One of the other questions I wanted to talk about briefly with these home inspections, and you know how Adam and I am about folks getting a, an understanding about it. We've talked about what about the seller doing their pre-listing inspections and disclosing that. Yeah, you, you certainly could. So I think this almost goes hand in hand with the question of should the seller fill out the statement of property condition before listing the property. Um, and I've talked to brokers that say, well, we have an office policy that all of our sellers have to do this. And that always makes me a little bit you know, nervous because, oh, you don't want to have that type of office policy because that actually exceeds what the legal obligation is. And you could have an office policy to have a conversation with your seller about it and discuss the pros and cons of filling out a seller statement of property condition. So I think having a pre-listing inspection sort of goes in that same category as it might be a good idea, particularly in this market where people are waiving inspections a lot of the time that it benefits everybody to have as much information as possible. So you know, it reduces the potential for conflict. Um, but it goes beyond what that seller is legally obligated 
to disclose. And if they have a pre-listing inspection that um, results in information um, that they weren't previously aware of, um, you know, they, they then have a disclosure obligation. The licensee has a disclosure obligation under Chapter 93A to make sure that prospective buyers know those material facts. So let's say a home inspection uncovers something that the seller wasn't previously aware of. Now they have to disclose that to prospective buyers. So that, I mean, you know, that's coming out of that seller's pocket, either in the listing price or if they repair it prior to listing the property. Um, so anything of that nature, again, it should be counseled by their realtor that says, these are the pros and cons how would you like to proceed and make sure that ultimate decision is coming from the client and then get it in writing. <laughs> get it in writing. That's right. Cause you don't want to try to remember that. That's a good email to yeah. save into the file. What about the client who says, uh, we did this basement like three years ago. We didn't pull any permits. Yeah. I mean, I would say that definitely falls into the material fact uh, category that you as a licensee are then obligated to disclose that's not to say there aren't steps the seller could take to try to uh, remediate that issue. So, you know, go, go talk to the city building inspector and say, listen, what do we have to do? And depending on where you live could, you know, result in dramatic uh, differences in the outcome in that situation. But um, that's not information you can or should hide. That's awesome. And I, and I love when people transparently say that because so many people tiptoe around so many different issues in real estate to get the deal done or to uh, speed through the process. So there's no extra inspections or what have you just get it done. But the transparency and the uh, bringing it forth, right. Being proactive, letting everybody know what's, what's going on is, is, is refreshing. And it's nice to know that all of your members are following in that, in that protocol. MAR, awesome resource, not available for everybody, right? Is this, is it go to your broker owner and then call us or can anyone uh, get a, uh, an attorney on the hotline? So, yep, if, if you are a realtor member of the Massachusetts Association, you can um, go to your broker and sign the authorization to uh, either call or email the legal hotline. Um, if you are a broker owner, you can also authorize other individuals within your office if you um, want them to have access to the um, services through the hotline. So a lot of people have like an office manager, um, you know, or associate brokers or team leaders that they'll authorize um, to access as well. So what's the best way to find the legal hotline and, and, and gain access to this wonderful knowledge that all agents need to have? Yeah, so um, if you go to marealtor.com, there's a drop-down uh, menu under um, advocacy and legal, and you can find all the information for the legal hotline there. Um, it has our phone number, our email address, and I believe there's also a link to the authorization form, or you can email us at mar at marealtor.com and ask for an authorization form to be sent to you. Catherine, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and knowledge and, and making yourself available for our community. Well, thank you for having me. This was fun. Hey, thanks for joining us today. 
If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. Today's episode is sponsored by Secure Title. Secure Title helps Massachusetts real estate attorneys, real estate agents, loan professionals, buyers, and sellers with all of their title, settlement, and escrow needs. Secure Title, S E C U R I T I T L E.com, where security and title come together. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, financial, or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.